Hello and welcome to this Anthro Life. I'm your host, Adam Gamwell. And today we're diving into the paradoxes of modern research and the surprising consequences of trying to package and shape human behavior in the age of AI. And I'm joined by Oliver Sweet. He's the director of ethnography at Ipsos, which is a market research company that does a ton of really interesting research all around the world to get to know and understand humans. Now, Ali is an expert in psychology and anthropology and social sciences and all the unusual crossroads where these can meet. And Sweet's going to challenge the status quo of neatly packaging behavioral science and urging us to consider a world where our feels don't match our reels. In a world dominated by organizations and influencers promising us productivity behavioral hacks and mindfulness nudges that'll turn us into Zen monks, we're going to unpack why the promise of individual predictability often falls flat when it comes to groups and when we try to scale it. But here's the kicker. The biggest influence on our actions isn't often what we think. Instead of these small, fragmented nudges and behavioral differences, we might be missing the larger force field of culture. So join us as we unravel the intriguing complexities of how ethnography can help us understand societal changes, the impact of technology on social behavior, and the potential resurgence of human connections in a world increasingly influenced by technology and artificial intelligence. So get ready for an unfiltered conversation that might just reshape how you think about the world. I first just want to say thanks for joining me on the program and great to have you today. Uh, thanks for having me today. It's, it, it, it's cool to be on your podcast. I've listened to you for a while, so um, you know, now awesome. I get now, to talk to you as well. It's great. Now we're now we're in it. Now we're in it. So I think to kind of to kick us off as thinking about this idea of how we can bring the social sciences into business. You've built teams. You've built methodologies. You've built techniques. You've kind of pulled people in. So I want to hear the ideas from from your own uh, own words and ideas of of how social sciences can find their way into business and like what it looked like for you in your own story. Um, I'm delighted to do that actually, and I'll, I'll come at it sort of a slightly random perspective. I um, I went to university and studied psychology. I know this is a bit of a controversial thing to open up this anthro life in terms. Um, so I studied psychology for three years, and I feel like I've studied anthropology for twenty years. <laughs> <in business. laughs> so that's been my way back into uh, trying to sort of bring anthropology into the work I do, but I do believe in a decent combination between anthropology and psychology. Being in an enormous research organization, I know that research is, and everybody knows that research is based upon the social sciences, but as particularly in a large organization like ours, where, you know, we have to churn through quite a lot of research, you need to sort of turn it into a process. And so I think there's some clever people at the beginning who say, right, we can analyze life in certain different ways. And then we can sort of formalize that and make it into a process where, where we ask certain questions and we get certain answers and we understand how we put them on an analytical framework. And those analytical frameworks all come from social sciences. But in time, we tend to forget that they come from social sciences. So, And then in time, we tend to bastardize those frameworks and those processes a little bit. We kind of make them work for our needs rather than actually work around the analytical frameworks which they're based upon. And then you lose sight and touch of the social sciences which they came from. Um, and I'm a big believer in going back to the frameworks which helped us create a lot of these research techniques and going back and creating new frameworks that fit for a certain purpose and a certain question, uh, or I'm sure we'll get into the state of the world today, but but the world is changing at the moment. Therefore, we need to start looking at the world in a slightly different way to the way that we did five years ago. And that requires us to go back to the social sciences and look at what what's happened in the past and look at trying to find ways of understanding how we are connected as a group of people. So I have, I've always been a fan of the social sciences, to try to bring it into business. The organization I work at, Ipsos, is actually very accommodating to these kinds of things, even if they don't do it. You know, we have a segmentation at Ipsos, which is our proprietary segmentation called Syncidium, and it's based on a very good framework of kind of a social and a, a personal dynamic mixed with some excitement versus some control. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly standard psychological framework that works for understanding motivation. Uh, but again, I think they lose sight of it sometimes, and it's very important to go back and try and build it. So um, one of the things that I've always struggled with, uh, and my teams have struggled with, if they're listening, I'm sorry, right now, uh, is, is trying to remove a lot of the academic language from the work that we do. And that's simply because I know that the academic frameworks and the academic ideas that underpin all of our research are brilliant. 
But I also know that a lot of that language means that people in business and people in government just don't listen. They just don't hear the words in the right way. And therefore, it's up to us to reframe, rephrase the words and the language that we use so that those ideas land. And it's the ideas that need to land, not the language. And it's the ideas that need to land, not the author of that idea as well. So we're all about spreading ideas about how we can look at the world. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter what it's called. If everyone gets to grips with the idea that in a post-pandemic world, we are far more highly connected with one another than we used to be, uh, it doesn't matter where that yeah. framework came from. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting perspective, and I, and I appreciate that too, uh, because that is indeed, you know, and confessions amongst your team, but then I mean, amongst, I think every team that I've talked to and folks that I've talked to is like, there is the struggle with how do we take the, the kind of rich and robust techniques and frameworks from the social sciences and then put them in a way that is digestible to business that can can kind of speak the same language. I think that's one of the interesting superpowers of the social sciences. I mean, and again, across like psych, sociology, anthropology, political science is that we are able to kind of broker, you know, the between languages, between different, you know, we might say cultures, right? And so this could be a culture of business um, and it could be a culture of understanding communication styles, you know, uh, amongst teenagers on their cell phones or something. And and putting those those kind of pieces together, so it is it's interesting that it's like I, I'm curious if we'll ever actually solve that, right? Because it's always been this perennial struggle of like, how do we talk about why this research is useful, um, how the research is robust, how it's valuable, but then also like have it speak in a way that feels authentic to uh, the methods. But I think I also take your point that this is also really about, especially in the business context, of helping the ideas land, right? It's not so much did I say the thing. Uh, as as cool as possible, or like you know, did I have a really great turn of phrase there at the end? I mean, it's nice to have a mic drop moment. Hardest to do that in a board meeting, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it's a noble goal, I think. Well, this is a very interesting thing. So I've been looking into the history of anthropology and the history of psychology. Psychology has sold itself to the world incredibly well, right? So uh, I've looked back through the history of it, and obviously uh, Freud's ideas live on to this day. Now, whether you believe in them or not doesn't matter. Freud didn't really sell his ideas to the world. He was interested in, you know, come, writing some books and creating some frameworks. There's a guy, his nephew called Edward Bernays, who was a PR guru in New York. He sold Freud's ideas to the world, right, as a PR guy. And Freud said, no, 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 no. You mustn't, you cannot use this idea of, you know, tapping into people's internal desires, the id, Right? overcoming the ego and, and, and tapping into the id, which is like your untethered kind of wild side. You can't use that in marketing. It's dangerous. And his, his said, no, 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 it's fine, and did, made loads of campaigns about it. And then once Freud died, he then marketed Freud to the world, which is why we, he is so famous as he is today. And, and the same thing is kind of happening in behavioral science. We see so many ideas around behavioral science and, and the way that they package those ideas up with a very neat bias that leads to an intervention, like an intervention in itself means that you can intervene in society with a bias. No, that works for an individual. It doesn't work on society, in my opinion, right? And then, but it's packaged up so beautifully that everybody goes, this is amazing. This stuff is so good, right? And I've looked at it past and gone, that's amazing. I love it. And then I go and try it. And it's not nearly so neat. And then as it's starting to unfold in a lot of academic research, they've got this replication crisis happening where they can't replicate and find the same biases. Some of the nudges that are working in government have backfired massively. It's just not as neat and as beautiful as behavioral science leads us to believe, but they've done an incredible job at selling it to all of us. And I'm not saying that anthropology needs to do that, but we could do a little bit of it. <laughs> I mean, we, we are, it's on the on the one hand, I'm, I agree that we anthropology could use better PR. Uh, I guess that's that's partially why we're here, right, <laughs> during this podcast. But but I think what? to your other point, that that's a, a super fascinating story that uh, turns out that Freud's ideas, while interesting, got that got a boost from his nephew. So I guess the other lesson there is that we should all have a PR nephew that uh, can uh, <laughs> take yeah. our ideas and help them uh, find their way up up you know to to larger audiences. But that's I think that's really interesting though too that. Uh, this is, you know, yeah, one of the debates I'd love to dive into with you is that we, we've seen is that, you know, you're absolutely right that behavioral science has done a great job of packaging itself. And especially like so many of the kind of quote unquote, I don't want to say quote unquote, but so many of the, the 
right? You know, sort of researcher, like thinking, what do we say? I'll say business research books that have come out in the past few years. I mean, like Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is probably an early one. And then now we have Nudge, as you just mentioned too, and like the, the Heath brothers and, and all their books made to stick. Like they're all these like very simple, well-packaged single idea. I mean, Adam Grant stuff to have think again, right? Originals, like all these things, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, all these, these thought leaders that have pulled, you know, kind of one idea, threaded it very, you know, thoughtfully in terms of, and poetically. And made it said, oh, this is, we should all add behavioral nudges to all of our user experience research, right? Or that our ethnography needs to look at nudges. But so I want to I want to tease out something that you said that, like when you're talking about an intervention like that, it can work really well on an individual, but then when you bring it to a group level, especially like a government, like nudging the government sounds dangerous, <laughs> you know, but also tricky because it's like, well, like how do you know how much of a nudge when it gets that big of an organization or that big of a group? So like, tell me a little more. Like, let's think think about that now. I want to kind of tease that idea out with you. Uh, is intervention the wrong idea or like, you know, is it, or is it more just like the beautiful package dupes us a little bit into saying, I want to have that. And then I, I apply it and it's like, eh, it's, it's good, but it's not, it won't do everything. You know, when, when you get into, I don't know, if you get into advertising and marketing, you are trying to change a small part of someone's behavior, but that, that behavior relates yeah. to a grander scheme of things, right? So you might be trying to get someone to engage in your brand or start to buy a new product or something. Now, there, there, there are wider implications about how people see the category. There's wider implications about the cost of living. There's wider implications about what other people think of you. But ultimately, yeah. it's not like a huge behavior. Buy or don't buy. Yeah. But, so nudges, the, the interventions, they, they're they worthwhile trying. You might not happen. You might need to look broader, but they're not dangerous. Like, sometimes when you get into into government and you take these things, these ideas, and you just try and apply them blanketly, it's it, it's dangerous at times, really? I think, because you don't really know what the outcome's going to be. Now, there are teams like the Behavioral Insight team in the UK who do, do a lot of testing of their interventions. So, you know, there is there is there are groups of people who are doing this with caution, but sometimes they go wrong. I mean, one of the famous, there's a few famous ones that have gone slightly awry, the opt-in so there was a one of the famous ones is that in the uk we changed the system for uh buying into a private pension as an opt-out system rather than an opt-in opt-in system so you change the choice architecture so when you start your job you automatically have a pension rather than automatically not having a pension so you can opt out so the, the choices are the same have a pension don't have a pension but the default is different um and I think that the, the 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 rates of people having a pension within that year went from sixty percent to eighty five percent, a huge amount across the whole of the UK. But within a year, the amount that we contributed to private pensions as a total UK nation went down because what we did is when we didn't think about contributing to a pension we automatically let the default happen. And the default happened meant that you put 3% of your salary aside. Previously, when people actively opted in, the average was about 5.5%. So where people go and make a choice, they make a better choice for themselves, i.e. I'm going to put 5.5% of my salary towards a pension towards the future. If you don't think about it, and you're not even given the opportunity to think about it, then it comes in at 3%, your future savings are decreased and it goes down. So they didn't really see that part coming. Another one, which was in, in the Netherlands, they changed again, they changed the opt-in and opt-out system with organ donation. So if you die, then your organs are donated to someone who might need them. They changed that to an opt-out system. So everyone was automatically enrolled into organ donation. And... Uh, 30% within within two months, 30% of the Netherlands had signed up, actively signed up, gone onto a website and opted out. That was like something like like three and a half million people logged on and basically registered a protest that they were pissed off that that this system had been changed. So and, and that that was a huge backlash, right? That was supposed to be a seamless nudge when they and and you know, on the outset of these things, they still had the choice. They still opted out, but they're not these these biases and these kind of this choice architecture needs a good lot of testing when you're doing it on a whole country, like uh, opting out of organ donation, for example. Now that's a, that's a, those are two great examples. Thank you for for sharing those. And so that has been thinking too. You know, as we ask the question of kind of behavioral science specifically, but in a, also in this case, if we're looking at choice architecture and elements like this, that it does seem to lean into 
you know, or coming out of, as we kind of said too, kind of psychology, social psychology. And so I'm curious too, like is not as a limitation, but is this kind of a function of psychology being a particularly individual, like looking at the individual brain? I know there, I guess I know there's social psych, but then there's kind of psychology more traditionally. And so is that a, a bit of a function in that regard in terms of how we think about like the individual makes a choice? Like, or, or do you see, are there movements in terms of like having a more broad uh, behavioral science that kind of takes a more holistic perspective like that? That calls itself behavioral science, I guess. Yeah, I do. I, I, th- I think it's, you know, so how, how do you look at how do you look at culture, for example? Do you believe that you can analyze culture by going around and having a discussion with individuals, understanding how they think about the world and trying to, you know, based on what they say about what they think is important, do you then build that up, right? And do you therefore say, I understand culture based on all the conversations between that, that I've had with individuals? So someone might say that they think certain things about the government. They might say that they think certain things about their family. They think certain things about their friends, whatever. Right? And, and then you build up culture from there. Or do you look, uh, as I prefer to nowadays, I was a psychologist, uh, as I prefer to nowadays, whereby you start to look at the connections between people. The, it's the interactions. It's what happens in between people that I think is the description of culture. Because what we say is fine for me ish i mean we don't always say what we think and feel is accurate on an individual level but but if you start to look at how people interact that's where i think we build culture that's how we understand culture that's how we understand how society works together and these things i think are are more interesting and more predictive drivers of behavior than we like to believe is the case um, and we like to believe it's that it's what Freud, ironically, Freud called uh, the narcissism of small differences. We we have these tiny little differences between people that we think are huge because that defines who I am. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, we're not hugely different as people. Well, yeah. No, I think a great, I think that's actually a, a also a fundamentally important point for us to begin to ask ourselves: How do we make sense of the world today? Too right. I think that's because it's a really interesting piece, and I agree with you too. In, in in that, when we're trying to make sense of you know why people what they say, well, you know what they what they do, and then what they say they do, you know, as Margaret Mead says, those are kind of three different, entirely different things, oftentimes. And but I love that point too that you know the often oftentimes these like the narcissism of small differences has us think that you know you're wearing a blue shirt and I'm wearing a red shirt with stripes, and that's like suddenly this massively important difference between the two of us. Um, and I'm reading a whole political spectrum into these things and blah, 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 you know, and it's like, no, actually, we just happened to grab the shirt from my closet today and you did the same and didn't actually think about the shirt I was putting on. And we're actually both wearing a button up shirt. So we're actually sharing more culture in terms of style <laughs> than we might think we do if we're reading something else into it um, versus what's going on in my neurotic brain, you know, you know, the, you know, and one of those tells us more about culture than the other one, I suppose. Um, but I think that that's a really fascinating uh, point. So something else that, that you said that I think is really important is that when we're thinking about these differences not differences, sorry, or thinking about the connections or the in-between, uh, in, you know, interactions between folks, that helps us, or that is a, a kind of better predictor or more, kind of reveals more predictive drivers of behavior than, than we often think is the case. And so, like, tell me a little bit about, about this, this idea. Is this something that you're looking at when you're setting up ethnographic projects at work, you know, or kind of thinking through these and as you're, as you're contemplating what's a, an appropriate method, you know, or, you know, group of folks to look at when you have a business question come in? Behavioral prediction is definitely one of the big things that we that businesses are looking for. They want to understand like what will consumers do, what will a, a group of constituents, how might they act in a certain scenario. Um, obviously, marketing is trying to give us a nudge to buy, but we also just want to maybe like priming people to be aware of a brand, right? Or just kind of thinking about what associations do they have. So, I'd love to break this down a little bit and kind of get a sense of uh, how we think about those connections as predictors of behavior, you know, for helping us make better decisions uh, at, a, at a bigger scale. It did. I mean, it's a, it's, it absolutely, I mean, that that's kind of the question about whether I take on a mm, brief or a <laughs> if yeah. I'm honest. Okay. Uh, I, and and I, I sort of put my hands up and say I, I'm, I'm in a position of sort of luxury here because I work within a very large organization that will do enormous amounts of focus groups and interviews and surveys and things. And, and me and my team, we do, we do ethnographic research that is as and which starts from the point of view of looking at culture. 
So we have various ways of looking at it, but fundamentally, if we don't think there's a cultural reason behind the topic of investigation, then we're not going to touch it. So we don't really do any evaluative research. We don't evaluate whether, you know, what kind of packs or cons that people should or could be using. We might be able to relate it to culture, but fundamentally it's, it's, it's a kind of comprehension thing and a cognition thing. And so we don't tend to touch that. We do tend to gravitate towards projects where they've got culture part of them. So we may try and look at, uh, we're doing a very large project across multiple markets, trying to look at, help a brand sort of refine its cool. <laughs> so it's kind of, what's the culture of cool within these several different markets. And what we do is we, we do some social listening breakdown to try and see what's being talked about and what's being discussed because because that's kind of a projection of stuff, right? So a lot of the social listening stuff, it's not real. We all know it's not real, but it is a projection. And projections are useful because that tells us how people want to be perceived. So that's kind of useful and that's kind of cool. And we then take those expressions of what's cool online and then we go to places in these countries where we think we will see these behaviors. So it might be a women's boxing gym, or it might be uh, some hikers, or and we, and we try and go and take part in those activities and go with those people to understand why people are going to women's boxing gyms, um, and, and what's the thing that drives that there. So we have a collection of people that we're looking at. So what brings this group together? Why are they doing it together? And we try and follow the story as we go, essentially. That's what we're there to do. Is we're there to follow the story and lead, see what someone tells us and why it's important, and then go and look, at, look, look behind that and keep looking behind that. And that might mean meeting someone, but then them introducing us to a friend, and then we go and meet their friend and follow their friend for a day. And then we go and meet someone else's friend and follow them. And we try and see why the people are connected together and then we can try and understand what drives them to a women's boxing gym or makes them become, you know, Gen Z hikers, for example. Like, like uh, why are young people suddenly becoming into hiking? Why do Gen Z who don't really want to drink alcohol, why have they started to do a cheese and tea pairing, for example? Like, where do these trends come from? And fundamentally, are they going to carry on as well? So I, I, there's this, we, we use a terrible term in the team, but sort of anthropological futuring, right? So we... And it's it's a term, right? It's, I, I I don't believe it should be widely adopted, but but nonetheless, you know, we know that things are going to happen, and what is the human response? I mean, we can talk about AI till we're till we're sort of blue in the face as a group of people, but fundamentally, the thing that I'm interested in is not the development of AI per se. I mean, that is interesting, but it's the human response. How are we going to respond? in terms of trust. How are we going to respond when we all have our own personal AI that is acting on our behalf that we have taught? And so that's apparently one of the big things that's coming down the line. There's a big arms race in terms of people developing personal AI. But how will how will I want my personal AI to act on my behalf? What's that going to look like? And you can start to use what you know about people about how people connect with each other, what what works well and what doesn't. Uh, and then you can try and plan for what that means in terms of your personal AI taking control of some of the decisions that you are making in life. Um, so I like that idea of, of, of taking what we know about humanity, about how people connect, dropping some things in there that we know are going to happen in the future, and then trying to extrapolate. How are we going to connect? Because we're not going to change as human beings enormously, but the environment in which we're in may change quite yes. a lot. And even, even you know, and to your, to your point, I mean, that, that's great too. In like, uh, you know, something you said up top too is that, you know, we are aiming to understand both humans and, and the world today, but even noting that in five years, right, that's changed very radically. And so it's like this interesting also thinking of, of timelines that on the one hand, like things are always changing. But then also it feels like they're changing more rapidly today too. And I think that's that puts ethnography, I think, in a really interesting spot, you know, because it has, and I think, you know, one subtext I'm, I'm reading into what you're saying, and you can tell me if this is incorrect, is that on the one hand that there's no there's no substitute for also being there, right? Like I, I love the way that you differentiate when we're doing social listening projects um, and social media, 
we understand the value of that, but not as this is the thing that is, but this is what people are trying to project into the world. And then from that, let us go then see where some of those projections are actually playing out. And what does that look like when you know people are, are you know, what are the differences and what are the similarities in that space? And so that's an interesting, you know, we might think about change in terms of how we've been able to do ethnographic research is that we have a new arena for listening. I mean, it doesn't sound new now, but the internet, right? But then obviously social media, because um, even 2004, when Facebook first came out, you, you couldn't really use it for research very easily unless you had a university account and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, now 2023, we have much more access to many, many different platforms to, to be able to do this and, and analytics tools on top of that. So there's a really interesting arena that we have in, in that space. So on the one hand, it, it seems like we've got new ways of listening and checking in on people in different groups. Um, and there's a huge value in that. You know, it also, I mean, Reddit is also a, a literal gold mine, a red gold mine of of, uh, you know, so their, their logo is red, but um, I'm trying to be careful about nice saying political colors here. So it's a gold mine of, of information um, and, and uh, you know, getting subcultures like literally coming together as a subculture to like say, let's, let's collect and talk about our, our Dungeons and Dragons, Lord of the Rings mashup, you know, party. And then also we have, uh, can, then there's still the, the piece of like, let's start there, but then let's then spend time with, with people as well. So I think that's an interesting piece because it's like, I've seen, you know, I worked in corporate research for a few years and there's always the you know the ongoing question of speed. I know that's not just for corporate research, but always just like let's let's do X Y Z faster, right? Throw some AI on there and, and turn up the the heat and the speed. And ethnography and a human life doesn't necessarily conform to to like <laughs> just hitting the gas, right? Um, so I'm I'm curious your thought about about this too. Like we have more tools, but I do also think that there's there's an incredible value of being there with people, right? And like that's something you can't necessarily speed up. You can scale it by having multiple ethnographers, I think. But I'm curious your thoughts about this this tension in terms of, or or maybe maybe it's not everywhere. Maybe maybe Ipsos is is magical and does not um, demand speed from research. <laughs> Eyebrows being raised, folks, if you're listening to this. But uh, you know, but that's just the question. I'm curious, <laughs> curious your thoughts there about about this this tension. Yes, I should. Uh... This is an audio podcast as well. Um, no, I mean, yes, we are definitely subjected to the idea of can we do things a lot faster? And uh, again, I'm in a very fortunate position where I basically say no, because in terms of ethnographic research, 90% of the time we need to go and meet the person. We just need to go and meet. We can do a form of digital ethnography. It gets us some other way. But if we want to get all the way, you really do need to go and meet people. And I... I I used to joke and I wrote an article once saying, you know, we're all anthropologists now because we have access to as much data or more data about people than, you know, the early anthropological pioneers did 50 years ago. Right? We can go and see what's going on in different parts of the world, probably more than we ever could before without having, having to leave our home. Uh, and so all of these tools, all of the, you know, just just by using Instagram and TikTok and other and, and, and other you know, platforms like that, you can see so much. And then you can actually divide it down into subgroups as well. And you can be targeted in that. And so all of that data is available, but it's how we use that data that becomes incredibly important. And when you start to dig into it, you realize it's not real life. So it's fine if you want to do a piece of research for Instagram or TikTok about, about you know, how shareability or something, do it on the platform, fine. You want to actually figure out how to get people to post more, you probably need to go meet them and figure out what stops them. Because all of those barriers, you don't see that on TikTok. You only see why people have posted something. If you want to see, you know, how people, how much time people spend preparing for that post, you've got to go and meet them, right? If you meet, like, you, go, you want to see what it means to someone when they get a load of hits and they get a load of likes, again, you've got to go and meet people. There is a, a wonderful phrase that uh, we've started sort of digging into in terms of around celebration and connection and meaning, which is, comes from Emil Durkheim, which is the idea of, um, of creating collective effervescence. This idea that when we come together, there is this kind of powerful ritualistic force that binds us together. He was talking about it in terms of religion, but you see it just as much today as in any other time of the you know the past right people coming together there's an excitement there's an element of performance there's an element of opportunity there's a huge amount of ritual involved and then there's a sense of connection that fundamentally you cannot ever get online and there is this i and if you want to talk or think of or explore this idea of connection or of celebration 
or any of these things, which, you know, a ton of my clients want to do, right? I work in for, for clients who work in, uh, in, in, you know, in alcohol and drinks manufacturing. These people want to create parties, right? So you want to create a party, but you only want to do the research online. You're not going to see this. You're not going to feel what collective effervescence is. Um, and then I also think there's an interesting trend going on at the moment is that in order to create and build that collective effervescence, a lot of the time you need to actually remove technology. You need to get rid of it. So a lot of the sort of high-end clubs of Berlin and London and other places like that, when you go in, they will put a big sticker over the camera on your phone. And if you are seen to be taking that sticker off, they'll kick you out of the club. You've got to go, right? You can, as a group of people going into that club, you cannot create collective effervescence if someone else is there filming it, live streaming it, or even just taking a picture so that they can show someone else afterwards. You suddenly become inhibited, right? And we've seen this in so many other arenas. This is one of the factors behind why younger generations are drinking less is because they have grown up in a watched world. So they don't want to lose control because someone might actually pull that up and actually scare them later on at another time. It's, it's a complicated idea, the, the reduction in alcohol amongst younger generations, but that's definitely one of the angles of it. So as we build AI, as AI, if we have our own personal AI, I do believe in the future there will be spaces and times where you can go and partake in collective effervescence, a moment of celebration, and you have to remove the technology. It will become an analog bunker and it will become a very sensorial place where you can feel, again, you can taste new things, you can see new things, you can feel it on your skin, but you cannot have technology there. Uh, so I do think, which is what part of the reason why as well, I actually think that this sort of resurrection of putting technology in your glasses and having, you know, cameras in your glasses and having little lapels that listen and, watch all the time which is going to be integral to having personal ai i think a lot of them work when parts actually they will not work because they won't allow for the social connection that people want to need uh so you'll have to take your off when you go into these places uh and there'll be places where you cannot have them yeah no, that, that's i'm uh, hey that that sounds great for one that we <laughs> please please put a, a marker over your phone but I, again like so many so many nuggets you just pulled out there that you know understanding uh, on the one hand like we can often see these kinds of, you know, what seem like either obscure or orthogonal connections, you know, that you wouldn't get from just talking with someone, but recognizing that, for example, that we're seeing Gen Z drinking a lot less, consuming a lot less alcohol. Like one may be tempted to say, oh, it's really just a health trend. And it is, in I think, in part that, right, recognizing the, the health and wellness. But then also, on the other hand, we're seeing massive conversations about the need for mental health as, as both a national crisis in many countries uh, and, you know, asking what I am looking for in life. And then on top of that, I think you, you, you put the brilliant point there too, that Gen Z is also grown up in alpha too, like in a, in a watched world, like they're aware of being seen and not just seen, but recorded or potentially recorded. Right. And that, that the idea of surveillance has a inhibiting effect on our behavior, right? We immediately say, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to act a certain way. And it's funny that, I mean, I imagine, you know, you and I too, it's like, even if I go to I, I was actually just at, at, a, at a meditation retreat a few weeks ago. And even there, like there's no cell phones in, in the space. It's quiet. We're, you know, we're doing some some different kind of activities. But even there, it's like you are, I am still thinking, okay, what what are other people thinking? You know, are they looking at me? My, you know, I'm, I have my eyes shut, you know. It's been funny a few times I've I've done things like this, and then someone would come up later and be like, Hey, I was kind of looking around the room and you seem like you're really into it. And I was like, that's weird to tell me that. <laughs> but thank you. You know, I know it's it's, it's a <laughs> uh, thank you, I guess, you know, but uh but it's, it's funny, even like we're, we're also, you know, on the one hand, we watch because we're, it's what we do as humans, but you're right, like being recorded would feel extra weird, you know? Uh, and then and that like, hey, this was not for you to record, you know, like we didn't even, we didn't even talk about that, you know, like, so I think there is this, this interesting too, like, again, bringing all these, uh, before I get off on a meditation retreat tangent, but like the, the, the power of ethnography to help us understand these connecting points that like, we do see things about health, but we also have this idea of being, being watched, right? Uh, and that's affecting things that seem unrelated, such as my choice to drink or not, or like how I interact in a, uh, in a party space. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, that like, you know, we've slowly watched the incursion of Wi-Fi onto airplanes. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I was like, oh, I can take a trip on an airplane. It's the, this is the last place that I cannot, I can't do any work. Sorry, boss. Like there's no email. Now I can, <laughs> you know? And so even this, it's like, I think you're right that 
we're going to continue to see also, I, I imagine, a rise in, in kind of these technology-free spaces or zones. Especially, I love this idea around collective effervescence as if we're here to have a celebratory moment that is about literal feeling with one another, right? It's like bubbling up, you know, it's like the the seltzer of life, as it were, right? You know, it's, it's like this idea of I want to be able to get into that you know, with with my people. I don't want to have to be sort of being watched or, or other moments, but like there's that that's like not at the least right not now. And I don't even know how it would get replicated digitally, but I, I think it, like we can't really dip, replicate taste or or even feeling that much. Or right? you can have like a jacket that will like push you if you get shot in VR, but that doesn't sound that, that nice anyway, <laughs> you know? But I think that's a really interesting idea of like technology is such an important part of our lives, but also like there's importance for us to recognize the spaces that we don't want to have it, right? Or that we need to not have that for our well-being. And so I think you're just to underscore that point in a very long roundabout way is that if we're doing research on people's, you know, party cultures, as you said, or even I love the point of like, how long do I take to write a post? What does it mean to me to like, what am I thinking about? Am I planning that post out? Like, you're not going to see that on the post unless the post is about how much time I spent writing the post, you know, but <laughs> most people don't do that. Uh, and so it's like getting a sense of that, like I'm waking up at breakfast while eating my cereal and I'm thinking about the post I want to write about whatever later today. That's at the graphic, you know, the, how we see that. And that's a, a fundamentally important point of like what would make posting more important to somebody. So you may actually want to do a collaboration with a breakfast cereal company versus, uh, you know, nudging with a, with a earlier notification. There's a, there's a really interesting point on that front, actually, that I think that is directly related to technology and phones and where it's all going to go. If you see someone take a photo of something with their phone, they hold their phone up, take a photo. One of the first things that happens afterwards, uh, and particularly particularly with children, right? You take a photo. The first thing you do is you show yeah. them the photo. Yeah. Right? The, the taking of the photo is a shared experience. And it is something that happens between two people. And if you cannot share that experience, then the technology is designed for the individual, not for the group. If I have a camera in my glasses, I cannot share the photo that I've just taken. And that become, that, that, that creates a barrier between you and me. Because I have access to information, to knowledge, and to ideas that you don't have access to. So we, 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 we butt up against each other. And so it's this idea, and that's what happens when you're watched, right? We are watched by someone or something that you don't have access to seeing that. It creates distrust. And going back to the beginning of our, our, our chat about how you bring the social sciences into research, this is Foucault's panopticon, right? This is, this, is, this is how he described the control that is created through the panopticon prison, right? One guard can watch all the people, but the people can't watch the guard. It's one-way control, one-way power. Now, I don't ever talk about Foucault's panopticon <laughs> with my clients and in my research, <laughs> but but the ideas that carry through are what we need to yeah. be talking about. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great point, because as you were saying that too, I was like, oh, that's Foucault, but then there you go. So it's like, yes, but obviously it's like, don't bring Foucault to a meeting, except bring Foucault to a meeting, but bring the idea, right? <laughs> 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 yeah. and it's funny too, because I was thinking about this too. Yeah. It's like a few years ago when Shoshana Zabuff wrote the book Surveillance Capitalism too, it's, it like picked up a little bit on some of it. It wasn't about the Panopticon, but it like picks up on some of that, the idea too of, of how watching and seeing, and then also this one way mirrors of technology, as it were, shape how people interact and like what behaviors they may have kind of in the marketplace too. And that's a really powerful point to, to recognize that uh, that can have both intended and unintended consequences. And like in something you mentioned too, when we're talking about like personal AI agents is uh, is the question of trust, right? So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, regardless of how we are going to implement technology or remove it, like it always, I think you're right too, comes back to this question of how do we understand how people are going to uh, enact and react in a scenario like that in a situation. And it's this interesting point too, that it's like, I forget some, I don't know, if, I'm sure we didn't come up with it, but some tagline that we said for a while with this podcast too, that, that was just like, it's like technology changes quickly, but humans don't. Right. And it's not that we have just, not that we're just totally figured out, but like we do have some commonalities, you know, minus our narcissism of small differences that like we actually share and have shared with our species for uh, hundreds of thousands of years. Right. In that, uh, you know, while we can't be reduced to our lizard brain and our limbic system, you can just trigger that to make me angry and make my amygdala angry and then want to go buy something, you know, but uh, at the same time, we can be provoked. Right. And, and so it is this interesting kind of ethical back and forth too of like understanding what do we share as commonalities. But then how do we also make the world safe for differences, right? And not just kind of, you know, cram things together into one, uh, you know, one type of, of person. And so I'm curious, like in, in this, in this thoughts with, 
the, the, as we think about technological shifts as part of this too, you know, obviously, you know, you know, you know, as you said, right, rightly up top, like we can talk about AI until we go blue in the face. Um, but, you know, I, you know, pointed out too, that it's like really, again, how do people are going to react in this, in this space or how are they going to enact and, and what's going to kind of be a human connect here. And so I'm just curious, like, you know, I know you can't say too much in terms of what are, what are potentially clients asking about this, you know, but just, you know, I'm interested in your kind of thoughts or trajectories that you're seeing. And like, how do you think about, or maybe there's no difference of studying around AI, you know, with, with ethnography and ethnographic methods, you know, like either incorporating AI into research or doing research on or about, or, you know, in, in conjunction with, in the context of AI. Um, it's, it's a very interesting question. I think that the, and, and it's, it's something we all need to talk about a lot because AI is going to be, you know, everywhere all the time with us. It's going to be the way, you know, in five years time, we'll be interacting with AI in the same way that we interact with the internet. We're not even going to call it AI. We're <laughs> no. not, you know, we don't go, <laughs> I'm going to go on the internet now. <laughs> you know, I'm going to look something yeah. up. <laughs> I'm going to find something out. I'm going to do something. Yeah. And, and the AI will be the mechanism that you use to get there. But at the moment, it's new. And because it's new, everybody's obsessed with what it can achieve. So I, I, I have to admit that a lot of my clients are coming to me going, it, what can we achieve with AI? And that's fine because that's a neutral question. But the question I'm concerned with is what happens to us as people when that happens? So in a basic sense, the first question, you know, how, how can we use AI? I think there's a whole bunch of research techniques that can be sped up uh, with AI. A lot of that is going to be around, uh, largely around testing. So does a message land or not? Does a concept land or not? Does a product thing land? Like it's essentially testing, evaluative research. How can I evaluate this? It might not be great, but it will be okay, and it will be damn fast. Uh, there's a there's an article that Mark Ritson put out recently that caused a lot of a stir in I can't remember what the, I think it's in Campaign Magazine or something like that, where he basically said that that some recent research that was done to create a segmentation around the automotive around automotive brands was ninety percent accurate when compared to a big qualitative quantitative study. That qual-quant study would have cost thousands and thousands of pounds, and it would have taken three months. It, you know, with the manipulation of AI and use of AI, you're basically done in a day. Now, for 90% accuracy, most marketers would bite your hand off and do that, right? Fine. But the automated segmentations, again, you know, they're not too difficult to, to predict. And the automotive brand, you know, automotive brands are pretty stable, right? You know, Tesla came in and disrupted things, but nothing else. It's, you, you could pro anyone who's got experience in the automotive industry could probably plot that map fairly well as well with a ninety percent accuracy. <laughs> so there, there, will, there will be there will be things like that. So how it's used, I don't think it's ever going to be like. And then you know, a lot of that will be synthetic data, so data that has been trained to behave like a human in certain ways. Synthetic data will never be able to act entirely in the same way as a human party because it can't taste it can't smell it can't hear you know can't do all these things but it will it will be able to respond with attitudes towards different cars right yeah. that would be that. and and that will come and it will change the research industry but i don't think it will change the qualitative world yeah. enormously in it yeah. but where where it Yes, I was going to no, actually no, no, ask about like yeah, the the idea with that in terms of I guess it was, it was a bit of a speed question too, just like you know in terms of like is that something that is you think will be more difficult to push back against in terms of just saying well we want this research in two days versus three months you know and like is that the aggregate going to struggle I, I wonder I think initially a lot of research really? techniques will struggle because a lot of uh, a lot of people will say I can get an answer from AI and so there, there's the uh, you know, there is the interesting element of chat GPT passing the Turing test. So the Turing test is essentially a test whereby you put uh, a human and a machine in two separate rooms, you give them the same question. And if you cannot tell the difference between the answer, essentially it passes the Turing test. You believe that the machine answer is a human answer. The thing about so much AI is because it's learned from language, it's actually incredibly good 
at passing the Turing test because what it's done is it's trained itself to speak like a human, to speak like people speak. And because it can speak like people speak, we don't necessarily question whether the answer is accurate. And the fact that it almost certainly cannot reference where it's got its ideas from makes it even harder to assess whether something is truth or lie, quite frankly. And it, 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 it sort of exacerbates what I would call flat thinking. It's going to encourage us to assess an answer by how believable the answer is, not by its sources and by its referencing which is an incredibly dangerous place. If we think that we are, you know, we, we're hopefully coming out of this post-truth era where politicians can say whatever they like, I think it's just the beginning of it because we, we are going to train people to believe in the plausibility of the argument rather than the sources of the argument because when we interact with AI daily and it gives us a really good answer back, but we have no way of checking, fact-checking that answer unless we, you know, it takes a while to get fact-checked it then we're going to get quite fat thinking, essentially. How believable, how exciting, how interesting is the answer rather than how true, which I think yeah, is a bit yeah, dangerous. I think very much, very much so. And I mean, actually, that's a, a, a lovely full circle to kind of a, a point up top that, that we were talking about the the well-packaged nature of both Freud's theories from his nephew and then into, into you know, psych and behavioral science too as like, well, said answers that I say, I need to have that kind of, you know, <laughs> nudge control in, in my, in my research system. Um, not to say that those are, those are not useful systems at all, but just like, it's an interesting question of like, uh, on the one hand, our swayability of, of like well-worded, you know, well-packaged ideas. Um, but that again is true for marketing. It's true for, for all things. Um, uh, cause we, you know, we're, we're a poetic species too, right? You know, it's like the, you know, I like the idea that we're homo ludens, the playful species. Um, and we like to play with words and ideas, you know, as, as something that, that makes us uh, particularly human, I think, you know, so, but I, I'm curious about that, that idea too, then without, um, you know, requiring the answer to be yes, because it's not, but just like, do you think that, that anthropology itself or ethnography, you know, as, as a method to is, is finding its way to becoming kind of a new or the possibility of being a new sort of research guru, you know, not, not dethroning psychology or behavioral science, but as, as connectivity seems to become an important theme uh, in sophisticated research, in research that we can take seriously on broad scales, like do, does anthropology seem like it's maybe either able or could it be poised to kind of help find its way as, as a more well-known business friend? I guess I, I I definitely definitely believe that, and obviously you know there could be some psychologists would say that this is some form of confirmation <laughs> bias on my own part yeah. to say of course you believe this because that's what you advocate, but. I do believe it's true. And, you know, so I've got a, a colleague of mine who works in the world of behavioral science who I often go to for ideas. And to, to, to bastardize one of his ideas is that we are moving from a me-focused world to a we-focused world. Essentially, what we've seen in the last five years, we've seen enormous amounts of change. Uh, I mean, it started pre-pandemic, but the, the fact that we lived through a global pandemic where we had to understand how our own actions affected other people and all the series of crises in terms of you know ne uh, geopolitics that happen around the world about all the different crises the economic stagnation that we've had the, the crises in terms of healthcare that we're moving into climate crisis right all of these big 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 problems that are becoming intertwined with each other all make us realize how we are connected to other people and I believe that we are more connected, not just in a kind of technological sense, but in a real world sense than we've ever been, right? So whether I go and, whether I go this Christmas and do my shopping on Amazon, which is going to be cheaper, or whether I go to my local high street is actually, you know, coming into sharp contrast about like, what do I want the local economy to look like? Do I want lots of shops on my high street. You know, there's lots, I live in a, a, a nice part of London where they basically say, please shop on the high street to save us. Yeah, they, they can put these messages out there. We are far more connected than we've ever been and we are realizing the connections between us, which is why these ideas that uh, from anthropology that look at the connections between us, that look at how we interact with one another are more relevant because they're more top of mind for us, right? In a cost of living crisis, when 
when we start to question whether we should go to work or go to a party because we have a bit of a sniffle, and that didn't happen before. It was my right, and my it's up to me whether I go to a party. Now I'm starting to wonder, will the other people feel like I'm putting them in danger? Will they feel like I've done a bad thing? That didn't happen before, and it's happening in so many spheres of life. So this move from a very me-focused world to a we-focused world, I think, puts anthropology far more at the heart of so many of the important social and business questions that, that we're now facing in the world. No, that, that, that's great. Um, and I, I think that's, it's a wonderful point too. you know, again, also my confirmation bias that the humility of so much anthropology too, is, is that, you know, it's, it's like, we only know what we know by, by being with people. And, and part of that too, even, even the way that you've described this as, as well, is that the world is changing in such ways that anthropology has a newfound relevance because that's what's, what's there. And so it's like, you know, it's, 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 I think an interesting way to think about the, the, the power of this kind of social science, um, in, in conversation with other kinds of, again, I'm not, we're not trying to say this is the king or the winner. But like, uh, you know, in terms of how we want to ask more com- complete and holistic questions and, and, and connectivity as becoming more top of mind is such a, such a key thing. Um, Ali, this has been such a fun conversation. I, I, could, I could keep going on. Maybe we, we, we shall in a sequel then. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been a lot of fun. And I, I've loved diving into ethnography and the corporate level and how AI is changing us and technology, but really, you know, at the end of it, bringing us back to this question of what does it mean to be human today? And how do we, what are the constants that we see that, that it means for, for being us? And so it's just as a, a, a very quick wrap up, just I'm curious, like what's what's on your mind in terms of what are you excited about? That's either coming, you know, we're recording this at the end of 2023. So we're, we're, we'll be in, in the early new year very shortly. So I'm just curious, like what's, what's exciting for you coming up in the, in the next year? Um, that's a very good question. Not one that I've actually been thinking about, but just following on from that previous conversation, I'm doing some work with some qualitative researchers in the UK to sort of promote the world of qualitative research. We're organizing a conference and the title of that conference is going to be humanity fights back. So <laughs> and I am excited about the conference and I'm excited about the idea that we that humanity is going to make a fight yeah. back. and so I'll leave you with that one that sounds good sign me up alright cool well, thanks so much for joining and um, we will uh, we'll catch you soon thanks thank you very much and it's been an enlightening conversation today delving into the impact of AI from an ethnographic perspective so a huge thanks to Oliver Sweet for joining me on the pod today and giving us a lot to think about from the replication crisis in academic research to the unintended consequences of behavioral nudges We've explored the complexities and potential pitfalls of understanding human behavior in today's rapidly changing world. So as we close, I encourage you to reflect on how the topics we've discussed today might resonate in your own life. You know, how do you understand or approach the linkages between things like the influence of technology, cultural dynamics, and human connection? You know, what are the best ways to understand our complex species, especially for businesses? And in what ways do you see AI and technology shaping social behaviors and human connections in your community? As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and insights and experiences, so don't hesitate to reach out and share them. As we wrap up too, I encourage you to subscribe to This Anthro Life in case you haven't already, so that you never miss an episode. You can do this on your favorite podcast player, or of course, if you're watching it, here on YouTube. And if you got something out of it, share this episode with someone who you think will love it. It's a great way and one of the best ways for us to help grow the pod. You can also join our Anthro Curious Substack blog for even more content and hop in the conversation there with our vibrant community. Your feedback and suggestions for future episodes are always welcomed. So stay curious about the stories and connections that shape our world, and thanks for being a part of this Anthro life. I'm your host, Adam Gamwell, and we'll see you next time.